is called LP If Spikes. This story has been rattling around in my head for around 28 or 30 years since my internship in 1989-90 at a residency program in San Francisco. I think about it a lot, and I often wonder what it says about me and residency and hierarchy and a whole lot of other things. I know how I would handle a similar situation now, so many years later, but that knowledge of how I would handle it now, so many years later, is built on the back of almost 30 years of practice and experience in medicine. Be that as it may, this story bears telling. Try not to be too judgmental about me or other characters we will encounter in this telling but perhaps you will gain some wisdom about how you would handle the same situation were it to find itself into your world. So to understand how I found myself in this story, I think I need to provide background to why I was an intern in 1989-90 to in a residency training program in a city at the heart of the AIDS epidemic. That background begins with the beginning of the end of medical school in the search for residency training programs that happens during fourth year of medical school. My girlfriend, later my wife, was going into pediatrics and I into internal medicine. We decided to enter the residency match as a couple into the so-called couples match. We applied to 12 or 14 programs across the country. Since she had lived in Northern California before medical school, she asked me to apply to a program or two in Northern California. So I did. I randomly picked two programs from a list in something called the Green Book, the ACGME list of programs that listed residency spots. There was no internet in those days. One of the programs was the county hospital in Oakland for Alameda County, and the other turned out to be a, a prominent academic training program in San Francisco known as University of California San Francisco, or UCSF for short. UCSF caught my attention for a few reasons. First, and primarily because it was in San Francisco, one of the most beautiful cities in the United States, and two, because the residents trained at three different hospitals the San Francisco Veterans Administration Hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, which was San Francisco's county safety net hospital, and UC Medical Center, a prominent academic referral hospital in San Francisco. Not too long after getting back to the Midwestern city where we were in medical school, I and everyone else applying to the internal medicine residency at UCSF received a letter from the Residency Internship Selection Committee. Apparently, they had not had a great year the prior year in getting the applicants they wanted because applicants were concerned about taking care of too many AIDS patients. The disease was at epidemic proportions and was tearing through the large gay population in San Francisco and the rest of the Bay Area. The letter went on to say, in an attempt to be as transparent as possible, that we would take care of a lot of AIDS patients. I don't remember the precise numbers, but I recall that we were informed that 10% of the inpatient medicine beds at the San Francisco VA Hospital were taken up by AIDS patients, 25% at UC Medical Center were taken up by AIDS patients, and 50% at San Francisco General Hospital. These were remarkable numbers. I had taken care of a few AIDS patients during my clinical years in medical school and found the disease both horrifying and fascinating. 
that struck me as I was reading the letter from the Internship Selection Committee of UCSF that I had entered medicine to take care of the sick and not so much the well. HIV infection in those days was a death sentence, and I knew that the reason there were so many patients in the hospital beds at UCSF was because they were so sick and because so many of them were dying. It seemed a peculiar honor to go to a place in the United States where so many people of my age were dying that needed doctors. I was not afraid of the disease or of the patients suffering from the disease. I was all in. I wrote back to the internship selection committee at UCSF, thanked them for their transparency, and told them I was ranking them number one. My wife and I listed UCSF as our first choice in the match, and she matched into pediatrics there, and I into internal medicine. And so there were a few things that brought me to UCSF, the beauty of San Francisco, the diversity of its training program, but above all else, it was knowing that I would look a single emerging disease in the eye and take care of its victims. And so that is the background to how I ended up in San Francisco. Now let's fast forward to approximately month six of my internship during the winter when I was rotating on the San Francisco General Hospital wards. It was a busy call day. In those days, a call day stretched from the time we got to the hospitals to see our patients at 6 or 6.30 a.m. through the day and night into the next day. There was no delineated punch-out time the following day. We signed out our patients and left when the work was done. The work might be done by hour 33 or 34, but much more commonly wasn't complete until hour 36 to 40. Usually we admitted five or six new patients overnight, and our average census of patients per intern was around 8 to 14 patients. Most of the new patients came to us late afternoon up until dawn. That call day wasn't particularly memorable until late afternoon when one of my co-interns from another team came to find me to sign out his eight patients. Getting out of the hospital before dark in the winter was considered an enviable achievement. It represented organization and efficiency, and generally speaking, that the work was done on the intern's patients. We signed out by handing over three by five inch index cards. Below each patient's name, there were one or two lines about the diagnosis, and below that a list of anything that needed follow-up overnight with a small checkbox next to it. For example, following up on a blood count result or an x-ray that had been ordered but not completed yet. Next to the patient's name and location in the hospital were three key pieces of data about the patient. The first was whether the patient needed an intravenous line. Key information for us, because if it stopped working, the nurses would call us to come put in a new one. The second key information was whether the patient needed to be worked up should a fever occur overnight. This was also key information because when the nurse called to inform us of a fever, we needed to know if the patient needed blood cultures, something we also had to do in those days. There were no laboratory techs drawing blood in the middle of the night, and the nurses would not and could not draw labs. The third key information about each patient next to his or her name was whether the patient was to be resuscitated in the event of a cardiac or pulmonary arrest. Some patients were DNR, do not resuscitate, and some were full code, do everything in your power to bring them back from death or the brink of death. In the penultimate efficient 
notation, each of these three pieces of information was represented by either a plus sign for yes or a minus sign for no. A slash separated each plus or minus. So if a patient needed an IV, was to be cultured in the event of a fever, and was full code, there were three plus signs separated by a slash. Plus, slash, plus, slash, plus. If the patient needed an IV line for medications such as IV antibiotics, but didn't need a fever workup because the source of fever had already been figured out and treated, and was a DNR patient, the card would read plus, slash, minus, slash, minus, and so on. The intern signing out to me was one of the most popular in our class of 36 or so interns. He was smart, calm, easygoing, and fun to work with. As he was quickly signing out to me, I noticed an unusual notation below the name of one of his patients. The patient's diagnosis was AIDS and cryptococcal meningitis. The notation was plus, slash, plus, slash, plus, for needs intravenous line, needs to have blood cultures if spikes of fever, and is full code if he arrests. But below that was a directive I'd never seen before. LP if spikes. Meaning that if the patient developed a fever, I should go evaluate him and at minimum draw blood cultures as well as perform a lumbar puncture on him, a spinal tap. Don't you already have a diagnosis of cryptococcal meningitis, I asked. Yes, he answered. He came in two nights ago with a fever and headache, and we did the lumbar puncture and made the diagnosis. Then why would you want me to do another LP, I asked. Because he's still having fevers. When was his last fever, I asked. Last night, but the nurses didn't call cross-cover, he answered, becoming visibly annoyed with me for asking all these questions when he was done for the day. But then, why didn't you just LP him this morning? What are you looking for? Look, he said, my resident is worried he could have bacterial meningitis from the original LP. I'm just telling you to do what my resident wants. But if you're worried your patient has bacterial meningitis from the tap, which, by the way, I've never heard of a patient getting, why not do the LP right now? Because my resident wants it done if and only when the patient has a fever. You know, if the patient had a fever two days ago when you admitted him, and again last night on therapy for his meningitis, that he's bound to spike another fever tonight. I've had several of these patients on my service with cryptococcal meningitis, and they can spike fevers for days until the infection's under control, I said. You just know he's going to spike tonight, and I'm going to have to stop whatever I'm doing and go draw blood cultures and perform an LP even though you already have the diagnosis. Look, I don't know what else to say. My resident wants it done this way. You can page him and talk about it if you don't agree. He knew I would never page his resident. His resident was a second-year resident, and we were just interns. What did we know? I took the cards from my colleague and went down to the emergency room to admit the first of what would turn out to be multiple admissions over the next 16 hours. As I had anticipated, Mr. Fitzgerald, which is not his real name, by the way, spiked a fever around midnight while I was in the emergency room admitting my fourth admission of the night. My supervising resident, who was rotating from Stanford University's internal medicine residency program for the month, told me he was going to go take a nap once we were all done working up the patient. I arrived on the AIDS unit to see Mr. Fitzgerald. His nurse was a very experienced man named Franzi, with a large brown handlebar mustache. 
Blood cultures, he asked as I went toward the supply room. And an LP, I said nonchalantly. What, he said? Yes, blood cultures and an LP. But they already did an LP when he came in, Franzi said. Exactly. By the time I got to Mr. Fitzgerald's room, I was beginning to get angry. Because light hurts his, his eyes due to his meningitis, I drew the cultures in half-light with only the light in the bathroom turned on. It was no problem for me. I was very good at this task, at drawing blood. He moaned because his headache was still bad. I had to perform two sets of blood cultures, each from a different site, on his arms. I had no trouble getting into each vein after cleaning and prepping the skin. I liked to use 20-gauge butterfly needles with some tubing that was attached to it. But it made me even angrier that I was, as far as I was concerned, unnecessarily sticking needles into this poor guy. And the knowledge that after sticking needles into him, this patient, who already had a diagnosis that explained his fevers, I would have to roll him onto his side and stick a needle into his back made me even angrier. But that anger did not stop me from doing as I had been told. I dropped the first needle into the sharp box in the patient's bathroom, and then the second. But it got hung up on something. As I was angrily pushing it into the container, it just wouldn't go in. Oh, for Christ's sake, I muttered, pushing the tubing forcefully off the slot and toward the opening. In my anger, I jammed it, and as I jammed the tubing, the 20-gauge needle, still full of the patient's blood, entered my right index finger, just proximal to the joint, going into the bone. I tried to pry it out and push the tubing and needle into the sharps container. My finger began to bleed as I looked down at it. I washed it in the bathroom sink with soap and hot water and then went out to the supply room in the nursing unit and found a Band-Aid. After I put the Band-Aid on my finger, I went back to Mr. Fitzgerald's room. I passed Franzi in the hallway. He was a large, tall man and somehow reassuring in the half-light there in the hallway at 1 a.m. Everything okay, he asked. Fine, I said. You sure? You don't look it. Fine, I said again, going back into Mr. Fitzgerald's room. The patient was sleeping, and I woke him up. I need to do your spinal tap now, I said. He looked up at me. Now? Yes, I'm sorry, but your regular doctors want to make sure you don't have... I paused, unsure what they wanted to make sure he didn't have. Something else going on in your brain besides the cryptococcus. I stared down at him. He tried to smile up at me. What with the fever and all, I added. He nodded his head. I tore open the LP tray on the table next to his bed, helped to roll him onto his side, and tried to bend him into a fetal position. But every time I flexed his neck, he moaned in pain due to his me- I knew it would be hard to get the needle into the L3, L4 space in his back if he wasn't maximally flexed, but I'd have to do my best without making him suffer more than he already was. I slipped the drape under his side, put on the sterile gloves, and prepped his lower back, swiping the providone iodine outward from the center of the spinal landmarks. I numbed his back with lidocaine, warning him it would feel like a bee sting followed by some burning. That was when I noticed that my hands were shaking. My hands never shook, but they were then. I held up one and stared at it, trying to will it to be still. I wasn't sure what was happening. Was it the late hour? No, more likely it was the adrenaline running through me after the needle stick. 
I knew I'd have to address that, but first I had to get the LP done. I asked Mr. Fitzgerald to remain still and inserted the spinal needle into his back. A moment later, I hit bone. I pulled back, re-aimed it, and hit bone again. Can you bend into a tighter ball, I asked. Bend your neck. He tried, but his back didn't bend. I tried again, a third time, and hit bone. I'd done many of these lumbar punctures, and I was pretty good at them, but I knew he was poorly positioned there in the half-light from the bathroom. I tried a fourth time. Nothing. Only the firm vertebral body against the end of the needle, not the spongy pop I would usually feel as I hit the epidural layer and pushed through it to access spinal fluid. Did you get it? he asked. No, I'm terribly sorry, I said. Maybe I can come back in a couple hours and try again. Of course, he said. Whatever you think is best, Doc. His kindness at that moment brought tears to my eyes. I wished he would refuse it, this procedure I didn't think he needed. But his second-year resident did. A simple procedure note in his chart would have described the failed attempt, followed by the words, patient declined further attempts. Case closed but he hadn't refused it. I would have to come back. I cleaned up, carefully dropping the needles into the sharps container in the bathroom. I found Franzi at the nursing station. Any luck, he asked. No, I said. You look like you've seen a ghost, he said. At that moment, I thought of all the AIDS patients who had died on that particular unit at San Francisco General Hospital. There must have been ghosts there. Too many of them. I got a pretty bad needle stick, I said, deep into the bone of my finger, blood from the patient in it. I sounded matter-of-fact like it happened every day. Oh, shit, Franzi said. I'll get you the needle stick hotline number. You've got to call right away and see what you need to do. I'm so sorry. I looked at his large handlebar mustache and his brown eyes. Sure, I said. Whatever you think. He found the number, and I called the hotline. After a few rings, a man answered the phone. He was an infectious disease specialist. After telling me he was sorry for what had happened to me, he asked for more detail about the patient. I told him what I knew while Franzi read through the patient's chart. Later on, I would learn that because the patient had cryptococcal meningitis and that his T helper cells were very low, that his viral load was likely very high, this making the needle stick riskier for transmitting the virus to me. The needle was a smaller gauge. That was good. There was blood inside the needle. This was bad. The needle was into bone. This was bad, too. Uh-oh, said Franzi, leafing through his chart. What, I asked. What, said the kind man on the other end of the phone. He has chronic active hepatitis B in addition to HIV, Franzi said. I repeated this information into the phone. Shit, the needle stick doctor said. That worries me more than the HIV because it's more easily transmitted. What do I need to do, I asked. He told me I would need to go find someone to draw my blood so it could be tested for HIV and hepatitis B. Have you had the hepatitis B vaccine, he asked. Yes, I said. The vaccine had only recently come out and was a requirement before starting internship. Do you know if you have antibodies against hepatitis B? I was silent. Did the vaccine take, he asked. I have no way of knowing, I said. Why would I have had that checked, I asked. 
The vaccine is new. Not everyone develops antibodies, and you're right. There's no reason until now to find out. Okay, so after you get your blood drawn, take it to the lab, get it processed. I will call the order in to them. Then I want you to sign into the emergency room and get 1.2 million units of gamma globulin injected. That will help prevent hepatitis B infection if your vaccine didn't work. We can't take any risks. I will call the ER and give them the order. He paused. Then I want you to go to the pharmacy and pick up a three-day supply of azitothymidine, AZT, and start taking it as I prescribe. Does it work to prevent infection in needle sticks, I asked. We don't know, but it's all we've got to help prevent you from getting infected with HIV. Do I have to take it? It's all we've got, he repeated. I hung up the phone and went and did as I was told. I took some blood tubes and needles from the nursing unit and went to the senior resident call room. I knocked on the door until Barry, my resident, woke up. I told him what happened. Are you all right, he asked. I'm fine, I said. He hit my vein on his first try, filled the tubes with blood, took out the needle, and covered the small puncture with a band-aid. Then he went back to sleep while I dropped the blood at the lab and went down to the emergency room. I got in line to register behind a young homeless man who told the clerk he thought he had scabies. <clears throat> the line was short because it was 2 a.m. I registered in after him. My pager went off and I found a phone and called back. It was the ICU resident calling to tell me we had a new admission in the trauma room. She was calling from the ICU. Are you busy, she asked. For about the next 45 minutes, I told her. I'll head down and start evaluating the patients, she said. Just meet me in the ER when you can. I hung up the phone and sat down in the half-empty waiting room. Most of the patients waiting to be seen were asleep. One was floridly psychotic, lecturing to people that weren't there, waving his arms over his head, talking about the end of the world coming and the wrath of gods and demons to come. A nurse stuck her head out from behind the door to the patient care area. She called my name and I walked back with her. We went into an exam room and she checked my vital signs. I'm sorry this happened to you, she said. Comes with the territory, I guess, I answered. Still, she said, it sucks. My pager went off. I looked at the number and made a note to call back after my shot. You ever have gamma globulin shots before, she asked. Nope. They hurt, and they swell up later. <clears throat> the order didn't say to do this, but I'm going to split the 1.2 million units into two 600,000 unit doses. I'll inject one of each in each buttock. That way, you won't get quite as much swelling. I nodded. But there's just one thing. What's that? You probably won't be able to sit down for the next few days. This stuff is nasty. Whatever you think, I trust your judgment. Now that is music to my ears. A young doctor telling a nurse that he trusts her judgment. Keep doing that and you'll get along well with nurses, she said. My mom's a nurse, I said. Cool. I dropped my pants down and she injected each buttock. She would turn out to be right. Both buttocks ached for days afterward, and I wouldn't be able to sit down for very long. I thanked her, walked over to the trauma room, and began working up admission number five. She was an elderly woman who lived alone, and her husband had died three months prior, and she had taken an overdose of aspirin earlier in the night. When her breathing got fast, she called 911 and was brought to the emergency room. 
I got her history and examined her while the ICU resident put in some orders. The poison control people told us to drop the tube down her mouth into her stomach and lavage around and suck out all the pills we could, and then to put charcoal down the tube to absorb any pills that were left down there. I put the tube down and she gagged and vomited all over her hospital gown. She did what we needed to in order to make sure she didn't die. Then the ICU resident and I wheeled the patient to the elevators and brought her up to the ICU. Usually this was my favorite thing, being in the elevator with a patient as the doors closed. I felt closer to the patients if I transported them, but I didn't feel that way on this night. Are you all right? The resident asked as we helped the patient from the gurney to her bed in the ICU. What do you mean? I heard you got a needle stick, she said. I'm fine, I said. Do you want to go home, she asked. No. Can I take your pager so that you can sleep a few hours? No, thank you, I answered. There's too much to do. She looked at me. I'll be right back to finish the orders and write my note, I said. I have to run down to the pharmacy for something. I picked up my AZT tablets from the hospital pharmacist. The small bag had enough pills to last until I could go to the employee health clinic on Monday for a full evaluation. I took a pill on my way back to the ICU, took a drink out of one of the drinking fountains in the hallway. I checked in on my new patient, wrote some orders, then my admission, history, and physical. It was now 4 a.m. and I went back to the age unit. Now what? Franzi asked. I need to do that LP. You're kidding me, right? He said. I went into the storage room and pulled out another LP tray and some sterile gloves. Franzi followed me in. They have a diagnosis, he said. I know, I said, but they signed this out and I have to do it. Well, at least let me help position him for you, Franzi said. That would be great. We went in and woke the patient and went through it all again. <clears throat> but despite Franzi's assistance and posi positioning the patient, I still could not get the needle in the right place. This time I only tried passing the needle twice and then gave up. I tried, I said. That you did, Franzi replied. Now let's leave this poor guy to sleep. If they think this procedure is so important, they can do it themselves later today. Both he and you have been through enough for one night. Go get some sleep if you can. As I was finishing my second procedure note of the night about the failed LP, my pager went off again. It was the ICU resident about another admission in the ER. The patient had end-stage renal failure and had missed her last two dialysis sessions. Her potassium was dangerously elevated and she had pulmonary edema. We would have to stabilize her, move her to the ICU, and call the nephrology fellow in to get her dialyzed. This was a straightforward case, my sixth admission and likely the last for the night. I felt grateful for all of that and for being near the end of that call night. I didn't have a chance to sleep in the last hours before dawn. I went around to see all of my 12 patients, including the new ones from overnight. At 7 a.m., I went to the resident library to sign over the patients I'd been covering overnight. I told Mark that his patient had spiked a fever and that I'd evaluated him and drawn blood cultures and tried to complete the lumbar puncture, not once, but twice. You couldn't get it, he asked, somewhat surprised. I couldn't tell whether he was surprised because I could not get it or because he was passing judgment on my skill set. All I can tell you <clears throat> is that was total bullshit, I said suddenly. I began to choke up. What do you mean? 
I mean that you and I both know that that was bullshit. If you and your resident were worried that guy had acquired bacterial meningitis from his admission LP, you should have done the procedure yourselves yesterday morning. You have a diagnosis, and he didn't need a tap in the middle of the night. I felt badly speaking this way to him. He was a genuinely nice person, a good doctor, and was ultimately just doing what his resident told him to do, following orders. I thought about telling him about the needle stick, about my night, but I didn't want to cloud the issue, the issue being that the LP was not necessary. If you'd like, you're welcome to take this up with my resident, he said. He took his sign-out cards from me. I had offended him, and he was angry. He left the library. I looked down at my hands, and they were shaking again. I went back to finish pre-rounding on my patients before work rounds with Barry, my resident. The rest of the day was uneventful, for the most part. My buttocks ached from the gamma globulin injections, and I couldn't sit down to write my progress notes in patient charts. I wrote standing up, my feet throbbing. Late in the afternoon, after I'd been awake for 35 straight hours, I was in the ICU writing one of my last notes of the day when Mark's resident walked by. His name, coincidentally, was also Mark. I put my patient's chart down and walked over to him. We were standing in the middle of the small medical ICU, ventilators running in the background, telemetry monitors beeping. My intern told me you weren't too happy with his sign-out last night, Mark said. That was ridiculous, I said. How do you know that, he asked. You're only an intern. What do you know? I looked directly into his eyes. What I really wanted to do was to hit him. I realized my right leg was shaking uncontrollably, as though my body was telling me to get the hell away from there. We did the LP earlier this afternoon, he paused. On the first try, I stared at him. I knew that I would regret whatever I said, and so I said nothing. My leg wouldn't stop shaking. Look, Mark said, your laziness should never be an excuse for not doing something on a patient in the middle of the night. My leg shook. I realized I hadn't urinated all day, but that now I needed to. No one in my entire life had ever accused me of being lazy. Plenty of people had told me I was a workaholic, but no one had ever called me lazy. I turned and walked away, leaving my patient note half-written, knowing I would come back later in the evening to finish it. My buttocks ached, my legs shook, my hands were trembling, and I knew I needed to leave the ICU and not see that resident again that day for fear I would do something I would regret for the rest of my three years of residency. I never told him about the needle stick. It wasn't relevant. I eventually finished my work around 7 p.m. after being up for 39 straight hours. Things were tucked, as we like to say. Consultants had been called, labs checked, potassium repleted, my ICU patient dialyzed and discharged. On Monday, I went to the employee health, uh, and results from my blood that I had drawn in the middle of the night showed my hepatitis B vaccine had worked. I had antibodies against the virus. This was good news. As expected, my HIV test was negative, but they recommended I have the test at one month, six weeks, three months, six months, and 12 months to make sure I hadn't contacted the virus. Little was known in those days about needle sticks and the risk of becoming infected. In the end, I would remain HIV negative, but I remained angry about what I had put Mr. Fitzgerald through in the middle of the night. 
Worse yet, I began to doubt my judgment. What if Mark was correct? What if the lumbar punctured, the LP if spikes, was a reasonable sign-out? What did I really know? I'd only been on an MD physician for six months. So several days later, I told our attending about what had happened. He was an infectious disease doctor and an expert in viruses. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard of, he said when I told him about the sign-out. You really should have called me which was equally ridiculous. I never would have called an attending MD in the middle of the night to protest another intern sign-up. But I felt a little better. I felt like my judgment was not off the mark. Was I just being lazy, I asked my attending. Are you serious? You went back twice in the middle of the night to tap him? Whoever said you were lazy? I didn't answer. It wasn't worth the effort at that point. At the end of my month, one of our two medical chief residents asked to meet with me for an exit interview as I was rotating to the San Francisco VA hospital the following day. We're just looking for anything we can improve here, she said. She was a small, charismatic woman who had originally met on my interview day almost a year before. I told her about the sign-out and the needle stick and my call night, which was then two weeks prior to when I was meeting with her. I can't believe you didn't come to us sooner, she said. Why? Because we've logged a bunch of other complaints about that resident, and we've nearly, we're nearly ready to take action. Well, can't you still use this to help you take action, I asked. I knew I didn't really care what she did with the information. The past was past, and nothing would change that night. No, she said, it's too far in the past. Too long ago to raise this issue now. I thanked her for her time stood up, shook her hand, and left her small, book-lined office.